Russell, I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but can you imagine when all the saints gather and the angels sing their little ditty and then some saint stands up and says, listen to this, and sings the glorious truth of the gospel in heaven from myriads of souls that have been saved who sing that song from the perspective of now safe in the harbor of heaven. I hope that the song leader bows down and I get a chance. That's what I'm hoping right there. Matthew chapter 5 this morning, we pick up at verse 38. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Father, this morning we are thankful to come to this section of the Lord's manifesto, building upon those blessed beatitudes, and characterizing for us the kind of righteousness that you demand. We already know the point, the point being that the righteousness you demand is not a righteousness that we can achieve. It's not a righteousness that we can perform. It's not a righteousness that we can aspire unto. We trust you for that. We come to understand the gospel of Christ as your provision for the very righteousness that you demand. That demand has been met in Jesus Christ our Lord. And as your people, we rest in his performance, not our own. That said, this righteous depiction of the law from the lips of our Lord, does indeed characterize the life of righteousness that every born-again saint is to embrace with a whole heart and trust you and depend upon you for the living of it. And so we have before us such a marvelous sense of message, both to sinner and to saint, to the sinner that they might have their eyes turned to the Lord Jesus and him alone for salvation. And to the saint, that we might be truly remembering of the indwelling Holy Spirit within and be dependent so as to live as characterized perfectly here in the terms of righteousness. Thank you then for us having opportunity to continue in this study open our eyes to the text at hand, especially because of its often misrepresentation. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. 
numerous passages of Scripture have created myths. I suppose somebody would call them biblical myths, although they're not biblical at all. They're unbiblical myths, but they are myths associated with the Bible. There are two classic myths associated with the Lord's Sermon as recorded in Matthew 5-7. to The greatest myth popularized by people all over the world is that Jesus taught his followers not to judge. How many times does the godless world, how many times does the carnal Christian, quote, judge not lest ye be judged? It is usually quoted as a means to deflect criticism away from themselves. Most of you know that that is not what Jesus taught. And if you don't know it, chapter 7 is coming soon enough. The second classic myth that is forwarded in this manifesto of Messiah has to do with the passage of Scripture under study today as an avocation for pacifism. I've had this passage quoted to me as justification for refusing military service, as a justification for uh, embracing the aspect of uh, what might be called doormat Christianity. On the basis of our text, many people have gotten a wrong idea and often scorn Christians who indeed have the right idea as taught by our Lord. Once again, it is extremely important that we not just uh, give a topical review of the subject at hand. Uh, I, I do want you to see that Jesus never taught uh, that Christians are to be sanctimonious doormats. But the principle of Matthew 5.20 and the superior righteousness of God's demand is what indeed drives this entire section of the Word of God. Therefore, without the grasp of Matthew 5.20, our text cannot be understood correctly. The point that Jesus made was that God requires a superior righteousness than that which can be performed or achieved by sinful man. In this particular section, the Lord continues to uh, bow, as it were, to a structure, a grammatical structure. You see it again in verse 38, ye have heard, verse 39, but I say unto you. And in that grammatical structure found throughout this section, Jesus is not correcting the law of God as set forth in the Old Testament, but is rather demonstrating the law of God as to its true intent and extent. The Old Testament law required that punishment be commensurate to the crime. The principle is called in the Latin lex talionis. Lex, Latin for law, talionis from the common word talon, like a hawk or an eagle, that which grabs a hold of a prey. The grab of the law, the punishment of the law is called lex talionis. And the principle of lex talionis uh, is found in a number of ancient laws and codes 
in human history, including the law of God given to Moses. I want you to see something of that this morning by way of background as we begin. So turn, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 19, and we'll look briefly at verses 18 to 21. Deuteronomy 19, 18 to 21. We're looking for the principle of lex talionis. Verse 18, And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thy eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, and eye for eye, and tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now that passage in Deuteronomy 19 uh, has a number of interesting facets to consider about it, but from a passage just like that, we find the principle established for societal punishment within the framework of a legal system. Lex talionis not only defers future crime by assigning righteous penalty severe enough, but it also uh, uh, establishes that idea of, of punishment that is commensurate or equal to the crime. The words life for a life, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, is not to be understood in the Islamic sense of that as is popularized in our modern world by the rise of Islam. But the principle that drives it as the fact is this, is that you don't put to death uh, the aspect of a person who has committed a small crime. But it does establish some things that we don't think about a lot, and I don't want us to miss those things just briefly this morning, though it it is only uh, in a small way connected to the truth of Christ in Matthew 5, and we'll get back to that soon. But I do want you to see that Scripture itself says that righteous punishment deters. Righteous punishment deters. In modern society, people debate this issue all the time. They say, well, we've taken capital punishment off of the table for murderers because we don't think there's any evidence that, uh, that capital punishment would cause a deterrent of additional murder. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says it surely does. And around here, we believe the Bible. So if the Bible says that the right punishment deters further crime, then our position is that the right punishment defers crime. But the principle that I call your attention to again coming out of this passage is the principle of lex talionis. Surely it means that uh, a person is to be punished based upon the reality of their deception or their lie or their murder. 
In fact, the passage began with the whole idea of a false witness, who the court then assigns to him the reality of his punishment being that which he would have been a part of assigning to an innocent individual by means of his false testimony. So that would be, of course, lex talionis on the negative side. But then on the other side, I would remind you that the principle of lex talionis is an indication of the mercy of God. Because there is no such thing as take a life for an eye out or a finger prick for an eye out principle. In other words, the idea of lex talionis has to do with punishment that is commensurate to the crime or equal to the crime. An eye for an eye principle stands as a perfect principle in matters of civil law. In fact, lex talionis, or the talon of the law, ensures justice for criminals and the extension of mercy based upon the actual crimes committed. Lex talionis, then, is a principle of justice and mercy. Jesus uses this arena of law in Matthew 5, back to verse 38. He uses this arena of law as an illustration because of the common abuses of the eye-for-eye principle in his day as popularized by the Jewish rabbis. The Jewish rabbis of that day were uh, popularizing uh, the idea of lex talionis uh, in the very same way that Islam does today. Uh, Never was lex talionis a justification to take the law into one's own hands. Never was lex talionis a justification to seek unbridled revenge. But what God gave as a principle for civil law and order had been perceived and perverted into a license to seek and to take revenge. As a result of that, the Middle East in Jesus' day had a wild, wild west mentality. And indeed, it still does. Personal vengeances are constantly enacted in that element of the world. Jesus did not restrict the principle of lex talionis in any way in matters of criminal and civil law. But what Jesus teaches here is that personal revenge is not to be sought outside the law. That you are not to take matters into your own hands. In the command, do not resist the evil, Jesus simply shoots down the popular personal justification for individual revenge and forbids it to be a part of personal relations. 
the phrase, do not resist the evil, cannot be legitimately used to say that uh, there should never be anybody serving in a military context uh, under a nation's uh, auspices. Uh, that, that phrase cannot be taken uh, to uh, uh, resist the idea of uh, engaging and cooperating with uh, matters of civil law. Jesus herein teaches that individuals uh, uh, truly representative of the kingdom of God uh, defer in every case of personal revenge or payback. In other words, what Jesus says is that kingdom citizens do not have a payback spirit. They do not have a revengeful action uh, engaged. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, summarizes the very same truth for us in Romans chapter 12. And I know that these cross-references might take a few minutes, but I tell you they're well worth our consideration. Please, Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Romans 12 and verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. A very good and complimentary text to what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. Now this deferment of personal revenge and the representation of God's kingdom are stated in three areas, uh, and the third one's an extended sense, in which we could call it four, or three extended, we'll get to that. But a deferment of personal revenge is the overriding principle here that we understand these red-letter words in our Bibles. We begin with the thought of verse 38, defer uh, revenge and represent God's kingdom when your personal honor is assaulted. Again, 38, you have heard that it hath been said, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What is that? Lex talionis. And that'd be right. That is what the scripture says. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Those that have a sense of kingdom citizenship, reflecting the righteousness of God's demand, defer revenge, and represent God's kingdom when their personal honor is assaulted. We're talking about R-E-S-P-E-C-T. We're talking about the way that people respect you or disrespect you. The words of Jesus assume that as one living in this world, you will have many occasions to indeed be disrespected. If I were to say this morning, how many of you have ever been disrespected? I'd expect to see a flood of hands. 
if I narrowed the focus and said, how many of you have ever been disrespected by a, a, a worldling? Yes. Anybody been disrespected by a fellow Christian? Yes. How many of you have been respected by a pastor? Well, probably. How many of you have been respected in this church? Uh, probably. Uh, I'm telling you uh, that this is a, a big deal. And if you don't believe it's a big deal, just look at the way that people hop from one church to another to another to another because of some little burr that got in their butt. For the sake of a burr, people change their whole life course because of some little disrespect that has been felt or known in some regard. I could say to Sherry this morning, uh, honey, have you and I ever been disrespected by the churches and institutions in Christ we've served? Oh, for Pete's sake. So many times that it isn't even worth hardly talking about. Disrespect is a part of life. And what the Bible says is that when your personal honor as a believer, when your personal honor as a kingdom citizen is assaulted, what you cannot do, what you cannot do is say, I'll get them back. I'll take this into my own hands. Respect is something that people desire and have come to expect in civil societies. We believe that people have a right to be treated with dignity and courtesy. We often know, or I should say also know, that often they are not treated with dignity and courtesy. The slap in the face, as spoken of by Jesus, literally, among the Jewish culture of that day, was the sign of an ultimate insult to one's honor and dignity. A slap in the face will not kill you. A slap in the face stings physically, but especially stings emotionally. I have instructed many mothers uh, when coming to the idea of disciplining their children that one of the worst things that a mother can do is slap at their kids. And the reason why it's bad for a mother, or a dad for that matter, but the reason why it's bad to slap at a kid is eventually that kid gets big enough, he'll think about slapping back. And the idea, uh, especially among some older women, that a good pop in the back of the head was somehow a good way to discipline a child causes the heart of a growing stronger child to rebel against the slap. Don't slap. Break the will by spanking as necessary. God does not commend a disciplinary slap. A slap is a means of showing disrespect. It isn't ultimately a greatly physical harming thing. And it is to that thing of disrespect that Jesus said, when you are disrespected like that, turn the other cheek. It is a precise and compelling action prescribed for those who represent God's kingdom. Insults and emotional assaults against our honor are to be deferred to God. Father, did you see that? Father, you did see that, didn't you? Leave it to God. Leave it to God. We are like Jesus. 
to leave attacks against our own honor and dignity to God, knowing that one day God will make all things right. Jesus, when reviled, reviled not again, but committed himself to God above who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.23 You might well dishonor me. I may well in some way dishonor you, maybe even unwillingly, but nonetheless may happen. And when dishonored, when dishonored, you and I have a responsibility to defer our rights to be treated kindly to God. It always interests me the aspect of the little category of books that are being assigned these days to pastors in training. It's always intriguing to me to see the little category of books that are being assigned to missionaries in training in our Bible colleges. And one of the books that is no longer on the shelf is an excellent little book for missionaries entitled, Missionaries Have No Rights. That logic, that a pastor or a missionary has no rights, has nothing to do with the responsibility of God's people to bring esteem to those who prove themselves faithful. But it has to do with the expectation of a pastor or missionary to understand that they are to defer, to defer, to defer. That God himself will make it right. It's only a matter of time. All kingdom citizens, are to handle disrespect by deferment to God who judges rightly. Secondly, defer revenge and represent God's kingdom when your financial security is threatened. Verse 40, and if any man will sue thee uh, at the law and take away thy coat and uh, let him have thy cloak also. Now understand here, Uh, that this is not talking about, that I'm walking down the neighborhood and somebody comes out, knocks me on the ground, and uh, rips off my hat and my gloves and runs away with my gloves, and I say to them, hey, you forgot my coat. No. No. Not talking about that. Uh, It's talking about a legal procedure. It's talking about being sued in a court of law. And it says, Jesus said, Uh, that if you are sued at the law and one uh, has, as a result of the law's determination, uh, they have the right to take your coat. Uh, We might, in modern English, say your undergarment. Uh, Then Jesus said, let him have your outer garment too. The principle here is, again, of deferment of revenge. If sued for your undergarment, let the plaintiff have your outer garment too. Now, this makes no sense to us in this culture. The idea that is that legal judgment has been made against you for certain amount, and you are to be willing to do that and more in order to settle the matter 
without any remaining conflicts. The instructions of the Lord in this case are under the umbrella that you did do something wrong. So back in the 1980s, when I realized that I'd taken the pattern that was given me at my former church and applied it to the educational institution of which I was serving, uh, uh, when I filed my taxes and I realized that I had not filed them uh, in a way that was correct and that to uh, report myself to the IRS would cost me $6,000. Before God, I had little to do except to call and say, I made a terrible mistake and I owe you money. And of course, they were glad to take my money and they were glad to take more of my money than I would have given to them if I paid it right the first time. Do you know about that? Yeah. I'm just saying that that concept of making it right and be willing to do what you have to do to settle the thing is uh, what Jesus is talking about in this particular passage. The Old Testament law provided that you could take uh, uh, as a means of uh, of, uh, of legal process, you could take the shirt off a person's back if they owed it to you, but you couldn't take their outer coat lest you leave them destitute. You have the exact same principle in bankruptcy law today that restricts a creditor uh, from taking a person's uh, uh, whole wherewithal uh, uh, when they are defaulting on their indebtedness. And, of course, we live in a day when there are companies and people that depend upon the fact that they'll be left with something after they default. This phrase has often been twisted to mean that we are never to restrict anyone who asks us for anything. Following the service, if you ask me for my car, I'll tell you in advance, no. I mean, you could use it maybe, but I'm not going to give it to you. And for that matter, I'm not going to give away my bike. The reality is, is that it's not talking about those kind of engagements. But the reality is, if I owe you, if you owe me, God helping me, God helping you, we should repay and the more. So that it does not remain in any way an issue between us. Number three. And I can see three and four, or three extending into an extended sense of three, or maybe becoming four. You can write it down any way you want, but here's how I say it for your outline. Defer revenge and represent God's kingdom when your personal freedom is restricted. Verse 41, and whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him two or twain. Go the extra mile is the popular phrase today that still represents the concept that Jesus taught. The background here is particularly interesting and informative. The Romans gave their military personnel special privileges not afforded to the common citizenry in occupied territories. One such law was that any soldier at any time had a Roman right to make a common citizen carry his backpack and equipment for one mile. Every soldier in Rome 
had a Roman law in which they could tap any common citizen to carry their heavy equipment for one mile. Jesus said, when under such a regulation, go the extra mile. Believers are to be conduits of mercy and vessels of ministry. Believers are not to be moachers. Believers are not to be going out with their hands out saying, what can the community give to our church that we might use it for the gospel? God has not called us to be moochers. He's called us to be ministers. He's called us to be conduits and vessels of mercy. When our personal freedom is impacted by regulations, we are to seek to honor them and the more. That is extended then, that idea of personal freedom restricted is extended in verse 42 to include give to him that asketh thee and from him that would borrow of thee turn not thou away. Well, the first thing that I want to say about that verse is that the word borrow uh, doesn't have any meaning whatsoever as we think about borrowing in our day. Uh, like, do you have a, uh, can I borrow a cup of sugar? You know what that is? That's sugar in the neighbor's pot, never to be returned, usually. But uh, the idea here is defer revenge and represent God's kingdom when your personal possessions are needed. Not that they're just wanted or lust after, but that indeed they are needed. Personal selfishness is herein forbidden. The command assumes that the things asked are, in fact, needed. Jesus is speaking of quick, generous supply to those that have legitimate need. Jesus is speaking about lending real help to others, not just tokens of our interest. So the righteousness that God requires is always generous. Never selfish, ever willing to go the extra mile when working within the system of this sinful world. God does not call us to escape from the world as a place, but to avoid worldliness as a system, a system that is held dear by sinful men. We are to live distinct lives to the glory of God. We get our set our affections as believers or expectations on things above, not on things on the earth. And so I was thinking by way of biblical example that what Jesus is talking about here is living as did Abraham, not Lot. Living as did Joseph, not his brothers. Living as David, not as Saul. And of course, above all, living as Jesus lived. No person among us is perfectly generous, perfectly selfless, perfectly willing at every turn to serve as needed. But that is exactly what God requires of us. That is the standard of righteousness that God sets before us. God's law rightly grasped, condemns us 
in matters of personal life, lust, lies, payback. Convicted by the righteousness of the law, we turn to the Lord, the only sinless man that died in substitution for our sins. If you desire God's kingdom, you come by means of the king, and only by means of the king. The only way ultimately into the kingdom of God is by the gift of the king. Whence, in the kingdom, by faith, in the king, then your life and mine ought to reflect the very standard of righteousness as God did and does demand it. In this, the sinner is pointed to Jesus Christ, and the saint is pointed to the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let me briefly explain before we pray. When a person reads the Messiah's Manifesto as an unbeliever, they are, if thoughtful, and the Spirit of God opening their eyes to the truth of it, would say of themselves, Oh God, I am so terribly insufficient for this demand. There isn't any possible way I can meet the righteousness of your demand. And God says, Right! And then God brings to mind, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The law is used by Christ to point us to Christ. The law of the kingdom underscores the necessity of God the King and his salvation. Once you've come to God the King by means of personal salvation, then this law, as spoken by Jesus, reflects the life of God's pleasure as lived by you and by me in real time, now and forever. And once again, I find my soul saying, Oh, God, I am so insufficient for these things. The life standard, the lust standard, the lie standard, the payback standard, it all speaks to my insufficiency. And God says to me as his child, right! And that's why I've put the Holy Spirit of God within your heart to shed abroad the love of God upon which you can find power an enablement to live a life that pleases me. Let every sinner this Lord's Day morning be pointed to Jesus Christ. Let every blood-bought saint be pointed to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And in those two ways, we apply the truth of Messiah's manifesto. Father, thank you this morning.